I'm Joanne Hagemeyer. I'm a member of New Hope Chapel's uh, teaching team, and I am eager to dip into a, a chapter of a book that has caused great consternation for uh, millennia. So let's solve it this morning, shall we? <laughs> uh, I was uh, this morning didn't go quite as planned. Um, Dave was sitting in our den. And uh, usually he sits in his chair in the living room. So what are you doing down there? Well, the dog's still outside. Oh, he is. So we're babysitting the Borzoi, who is as big as a person. And um, he, he's hard to miss in the backyard. And I couldn't see him out there. So I went out into the backyard. And, uh, and he wasn't in the backyard. There was a, a hole in the fence. So, so suddenly Sunday uh, changed, changed, took a left turn. And... Um, and so I clapped my hands and I called for him. Now, he and I don't have the same kind of relationship that uh, he has with Natasha, but, but David and I have been trying to build a relationship uh, with our grand dog. And so I was hoping, 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 please, God, bring him back. He can run so fast. Uh, Borzoi are among the, the fastest dogs on earth. and They make greyhounds look like slowpokes. And, um, and he came back. He was far away, too. But I called out, and, and, you know, every mother has developed a voice that, that actually carries quite far. <laughs> and so I called uh, him as loud as I could. I clapped my hands. Please, God, please, God. Please that he didn't get hit by a truck, because Richie is just down there. And he came back. I was really rattled, but also really thankful. And, uh, and when he came back, of course, I didn't scold him at all. I just was like, oh, you're the prodigal son. <laughs> <laughs> And I was thinking about the love tie that brought him back. There, there was, as tenuous as it was, and as faint as my hope was, he came back. And it made me think about our tie with the Lord. It's so much stronger than that. And no matter how far we get, whatever hole we, we find to climb through, when God calls, there's a tug. And, and God will bring us back. That love will bring us back. So that's my preamble to this chapter. Uh, Steve led us into some really deep thinking, but it was a while ago about the first part of this chapter, and uh, this is the part that's really troubled people. So let's just read it together again. Therefore, let us go on toward perfection, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ and not laying again the foundation, repentance from dead works and faith toward God, instruction about baptisms and laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, which by the way, that's the basics, okay? Uh, And we will do this if God permits, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and are holding him up to contempt. Ground that drinks up the rain falling on it repeatedly and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and on the verge of being cursed. Its end is to be burned over. Now, that's some bright and happy thoughts to start out with. But, but what I wanted to find out is, um, 
what stuck with you? This was a number of weeks ago that, that we walked with Steve through this passage. What stuck with you? Um, or, or new thoughts or questions or you know, anything. Um, by the way, Melanie is in the background and she is as swift as a borzoi. And, <laughs> and so if you have a thought, um, just wave a hand or something and she will hand you a mic. You have a thought, Andrea? <laughs> All right, so just thoughts. Yeah, go ahead, Dave. Uh, yeah, sorry. Now. I, th- I think I recall this from, from, from Steve's talk, but that this is like an extreme case, and he wasn't like talking to the people like this was them, but it is, it is a, a limit that's out there that, it, you know, that, that he's using as a, as a way to emphasize um, where they're at. Mm-hmm. That they're drifting away, but they're not here. We're trying to make a point, though, just maybe bring it to the nth degree. Yeah, okay. Anybody else? Thoughts? Back here, Will has a thought. So I'm a little... My first thought was, was thinking about the concept of, okay, falling away. Is that even possible? Because God's grace is supposed to, you know cover all sins uh and then i and then i I started looking at how it's a contrast the first part is you know going forward you know it's almost it reminds me of the verse was like you know don't baby when you're baby in the faith you drink milk when you're uh, start maturing you drink more solid foods now that's in contrast with falling away from grace altogether yeah and and steve brought that in too so i'm glad you're you remembered that part and brought it in too. Maybe one last idea. We're not going to linger here, but the second half of this chapter makes more sense if we remember what the first half said. Um, the writer was intent on bringing the readers to maturity in their lives of faith. So he, he was saying, therefore, let us go on toward perfection. And in this case, that word, we want to understand that word to mean wholeness not perfect as in the thing that we can never be, but whole and in our maturity, lacking in nothing. So that was going to be building on this basic teaching of repentance and faith and baptism. This is anointing and powerful prayer, a believer's resurrection, and eternal judgment. So, which meant in turn that readers needed to be holding steady in these basic things, not wavering back and forth. And I wonder if what the writer was saying is, is you, you can't go back and forth. It's just impossible. That's in the past now. That's happened already. Otherwise, it's like you're trying to crucify Jesus over and over again. That just happened the one time. That's, I just, I wonder. I don't know, but I wonder. And the writer of Hebrews had already warned the readers, as, as I think, Will, you, did you bring it up, or Dave, one of y'all, um, that it's... We have to pay greater attention to what we've already heard so we don't drift away. And actually, James warned readers also about the dangers of being double-minded. And he said, if if you ask in faith, don't doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea, and and they're driven back and forth by the wind. So there are a number of ways to understand what the writer was saying, and, and one of them that people have talked about is loss of salvation. You know, some people do think that, but 
this was also a, a very canny idea, hyperbole, because actually that kind of rhetorical device was pretty common in antiquity. Um, another idea might be that it was a revisiting of the parable of soils. Jesus talked about uh, what happened to the different soils. But um, whatever the writer was trying to get to, they were quick to reassure their readers, which was Dave's point. Even though we speak in this way, beloved, we are confident of better things in your case, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust. God will not overlook your work and the love that you showed for the Lord's sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we want each one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the very end so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, so how does what the writer said here help us put the first part of this chapter into a better context? What do you think? So when we consider that it's the book of the Hebrews, that last sentence, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, that should take us back to the Old Testament, to what happened with people who believed God's promises and literally, physically experienced receiving what God had promised to them. That's a great thought. Actually, I think we're going to see that thread coming through Hebrews. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, Ned. Thank you. <clears throat> Sorry about the voice. Um, and I'm just asking chronologically now, because I know that there was uh, persecution um, in the early church, and I know that there were Christians who uh, renounced their faith. And after the persecutions ended, they returned to the church, and there was a big controversy mm -hmm. within the church about whether or not to receive them back. Um, again, I'm not sure about the chronology. Uh, is it possible that what we're looking at here addresses or is touching on that particular um, problem? Yeah, scholars think that it was touching on that problem. The one that you're talking about, the Anabaptists, they came right around Augustine's time, so that's more 4th century. Um, most scholars would, well, the scholars that I follow, would be willing to place Hebrews a couple centuries before then. Nevertheless, there was a problem happening among Jewish believers. The persecution was, as you say, increasing, and um, the tug of the temple was pulling them back. And the tug of the old ways, which certainly were God's ways, so why wouldn't they still be God's ways? And that whole community would happily receive them back, whereas the Christian community was being rejected on every side. So that's a, that's a good and important thought. Mm -hmm. Any other ideas on that? Okay, well, so some good thinking there. The next thing the writer wanted to do was lean in on the faithfulness of God. And also... I want to say synergistically on the faithfulness of the person receiving God's promise. So here's what the uh, writer said. When God made a promise to Abraham, because he had no one greater by whom to swear, God swore by God's own self, saying, I, 
will surely bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently endured, as you pointed out, Joy, obtained the promise. So, I mean, I looked at this thinking, well, those two lines, that's why I highlighted them, those two lines have something to do with each other. Th- this isn't just God doing something and we're doing nothing. God is working together with us and our response, and our response is, is going to mean leaning into sometimes suffering, sometimes rejection, uh, sometimes things that are going to be telling us, don't go there. That's not the way to get what you want. And Abraham was a good example of faith. See, there we go. Um, he, he was someone who persevered with not that much information in spite of his shortcomings. And he had, he had some shortcomings. He uh, sometimes endangered the plan that God had in mind for him, and then God would move in and redirect. The point is, every single time God came in to redirect, Abraham surrendered and said, okay, I will do what you're saying, God. Even though it's, it's hurting my heart, I will do it. And, and some of the things that God asked of Abraham just about was literally ripping his heart out. But he said yes. And so that's the kind of faith that the writer was saying, have it. That's what God's working in you. That's what the maturity of faith is all about, leaning in every time. So then the writer leaned in even harder on God's faithfulness. Humans, of course, swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath given as confirmation puts an end to all dispute among them. In the same way, which isn't that interesting, we still do that. We have people swear with their hand on a Bible today, and it's like, okay, we accept it now, it's settled. They really are telling the truth. Isn't that something? All right. In the same way, when God desired to show even more clearly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of God's purpose, the Lord guaranteed it by an oath, so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible that God would prove false, we who have taken refuge might be strongly encouraged to seize the hope set before us. And my question is, what are the two unchangeable things? You guys, does anybody know what they are? That's an honest question. It's not rhetorical. Hit me. Okay, Christ's sacrifice, that's unchangeable. Didn't didn't he swear by himself, like his character, who he is? And that's unchangeable, like his promises, right? I mean, I'm agreeing with you. I, I pulled this clip up from the Torah, which is everybody would know what was in the Torah. And uh, it says here that God's not like people. God's mind doesn't change. God's character doesn't change. God promises it. It's coming through. You can bank on it. If God says it, then God will do it. So, so at least God's character, that's unchangeable. Might there be anything else that's unchangeable? Because we, we've got two things. Well, I think perhaps the resurrection, because that was something, that was an evidence that they had seen, a, a physical miraculous evidence that Jesus was 
who he claimed to be and that he was the true word of God. And it was proved by the resurrection. I like it. I wasn't thinking about the resurrection when I was thinking through this, so I'm really glad you said something because that was a stake in the ground, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I pulled another clip from Isaiah, which, which was a hot favorite of the New Testament writers, and they talk about the Word of God, and you're talking about the ultimate Word of God, which proved itself as unable to stay in a grave. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. That's, that's rich. Well, these are two unchangeable things that make it completely certain. Isaiah, or rather James, echoed what these two writers and what you all have to say. He said, every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God just doesn't change. Which is good, because we are very changeable. If we find a little hole in the fence, off we go. Uh, God is infinitely and eternally trustworthy. So every promise of God is infinitely and eternally trustworthy. God says we have hope, then we have hope. And that's what I get from this chapter. The unchanging nature of God's word, and bring it both ways, God's spoken word and the word of God, which is Jesus, and God's character give unshakable hope in God's purpose in Jesus. So the writer concluded, we have this hope, which is Jesus, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Thank you very, very much for that song that was so perfect this morning. A hope, Jesus, that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever, according to the order, order of Melchizedek. Now, put a pin in that, because Julie and Bill are going to talk about Melchizedek, to us a mysterious figure, but to um, the audience of that day, that original audience, they knew exactly who that guy was and exactly why that priesthood was so important. And I'm sure it startled them to see it in this context. They were like, it must have made all the pieces fall into place. Oh, Jesus, in the order of... That solves everything. You'll find out why. (laughs) But in the meantime, see if you can make this last statement here, put the whole chapter into perspective. Let's move on to perfection. Let's build on the basics. Let's not do all that other stuff. See if you can put it all together. Anybody good at summarizing? Anybody really bad at summarizing but willing to take a stab at it? Anybody want to call a lifeline? Think it through. How did he start? Or she start, whoever it was who wrote Hebrews. How did they start with this chapter? What do they want? Do you remember? Okay, we'll go back. Go all the way back to the beginning. 
Yeah, I like that. The, um, see this ground here that's drinking up the rain? And it produces this wonderful crop. And it receives a blessing from God. The scary part is if it produces thorns and thistles. But do you guys know that when you burn a field, what you've done is convert all the thorns and thistles into something that will feed the ground, and then you just resow it. it. The farmer doesn't like say, well, forget it. I'm going to make the ground disappear. You can't make ground disappear. The ground will always be there. So, so it's like I'm just going to burn the whole thing and start over. That's all that is. That makes sense? Okay, so that also pulls into what you're saying. Yeah, Dave has something too. To me, it's the we have this hope. And it's like, it's not something that's like put on us. It's, it's within us. We, we have, I mean, speaking for myself, I have been changed by this experience. Mm -hmm. And so I'm transformed by this experience of coming to know Jesus. I'm now one of God's children through this experience. And so there is no other, there is no backwards. It, you can't go back. It's irreversible. And I think that's that steady anchor for the soul to really lean into that transformation. That's the call, I think, that it's on my heart. Is that transformation is taking place. So move forward. Don't linger. Doesn't that ring true for our whole life of faith? That we don't go back to what we were. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, and uh, I, I really appreciate David. He talked about a little bit of what I wanted to talk about, so I'm going to let that stand. Uh, but I've been, you know, my, my, uh, the ground shook under me when, we, when you were going through of Hebrews 4, and that the rest is maturity in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, this whole transformation process goes on. And every chapter since then, I, I've just, that's been a theme for me. And I think it's here too. There's no going back. And the prize, the hope is this... Um, uh, is, is this coming to maturity that, that, that's out there for us? Not only have we been saved from sin, but now there's this transformation going on, and the hope is that we, we, we hit this uh, level of maturity that he's talking about. And, and that's where, that, that's where I, I read in this chapter, God uh, giving us his word, his promise, Two unchangeable things that um, that we are uh, that we have this hope that that's going to happen. Yes, and it's not dependent on us. Yes, even more. God's faithful. God works with our faithfulness, but God is even more faithful. I love that. That doesn't that make you feel like a little more secure? Like it's not all up to you. You have an anchor. The anchor is Jesus, and Jesus alone. Let's see, did I get to this one yet? Yeah. Remember we talked about that? The anchor was a first century symbol of the faith because it's all about Jesus. Jesus alone is strong enough to, to anchor our rope, that's our lives, our faith, and to keep us securely bound through the veil, right, into the Holy of Holies, the heavenly Holy of Holies, to the throne of God, 
which do you remember where the throne of God was considered to be in the temple? Where was it? In the Holy of Holies, on the mercy seat. That's where we're anchored. Thank you to Jesus, the unchanging nature of God. God's word and God's character, that's what gives our hope unshakability in God's purpose in Christ, which can't be undone. You can't undo the cross. You can't undo the resurrection. You can't undo it. It just can't be done. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, how thankful and relieved we are that once anchored, always anchored, that it's your faithfulness, that our maturity does involve our faithfulness, but our anchor, that's on you. Oh, thank you, God. Please give us courage this week and help us to see opportunities where we can lean into your faithfulness and also where our faithfulness can grow. We ask it to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.